everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we feature the case of Joanne Parks. In 1989, she was a young mother who lost her kids in a tragic fire, except the investigators at the time, using archaic methods, determined that it wasn't a tragic fire, but rather arson, and therefore murder. And on the basis of this evidence, Ms. Parks was sentenced to life in prison. But we have learned a lot about arson since 1993, and since then, we now know that things that used to be taken as telltale signs of arson are now flawed science and were likely, if not certainly, accidental. However, the system is not able to correct these problems. So even as experts know that the science is bad, Ms. Parks has remained in prison. I learned about this case through a book called Burn by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Edward Humes. I read the book last year. Tragically, the judicial system could not or would not exonerate Ms. Parks. But on Friday, Governor Gavin Newsom commuted her sentence, which will now allow her to go through the parole hearing. Today, we have Innocence Project attorney Raquel Cohen who has represented Joanne Parks. Welcome to our show, Raquel. Hi, thank you for having me. So I know I gave like the 30,000-foot overview, but I think it's important for our listeners to understand what was the evidence presented at trial and why is that evidence wrong? So at the time of trial, um, they went, okay, before they started to even say this was criminal. They believed the fire was accidental. Um, and they went in there and they looked at the burn patterns on the walls. And fire investigators do this. This is how they find out where the fire started. And once they know where the fire started, they can look at what started the fire in that area. Um, at the time, this house was burned very badly. The fire burned anywhere between five and 20 minutes in what we call post-flashover conditions. There was a lot of air movement in the house, which changes fire patterns. But at the time in 1992, they weren't considering things that today would completely change the investigation. So they eventually came to the conclusion that the fire was intentionally started and it was an arson because what appeared to be multiple areas of origin. So that means you would have to have a fire starting in two points in the house. 
and that less likely will support an accidental cause. Um, if you have two, it's more likely somebody intended those two to start in different rooms. And they also based it on burn patterns for a closet door where the third child was later found um, hiding in that closet. And they used that to say, no, these burn patterns actually show that this child was barricaded in the closet. Um, but using the methods today, that's just that science isn't there to support any of those theories. So um, how and when did you get involved in this case? Um, I was a student in the California Innocence Project, which is located in San Diego out of the California Western School of Law. I was a student in 07-08, and at the time, the case was already in our office. I wasn't directly assigned to it, but we were already looking into the issues with it. Um, but then I got hired on to the California Innocence Project in 2011, and I think it was around 2012 or 2013, the case fell on my desk as, hey, this is a case that we uh, really want to file on, but we can't because we've had this uh, bad law come down in California, but um, we have this, it was, I think it was about 2011, we have this really great report that says the science was really bad at the time and the new science proves there's nothing to support her conviction. But right around that time, California dropped this really, we got this really bad law out of the California Supreme Court that said experts can't have false opinions because opinions can't be false. And um, in order to bring this kind of case, we had to show it was a false expert opinion. Um, so there was a lot of things happening in our office um, and we changed, went up to the legislature and we changed that law to say that um, if there was a change in science or if an expert repudiated later, you can have false scientific evidence. So once that law changed in 2015, we already had most of our evidence. And so we filed in that year. But I had been working on it with our students because that's how our project runs. Our students kind of investigate under the supervision of an attorney. Um, and so I had knowledge about it. I was meeting with a client. I would say between 2011 and 2012, I started. I officially filed in 2015. So at what point did you know that this person was innocent? Um. We knew that there were really big problems with the case. I know the student working on the case in 2007 had talked to John Lentini, who was leading the way and saying that there were all these myths that supported an arson. We received that final report from him um, and his crew in 2011, and we were pretty, you know, we felt pretty strongly that this conviction was definitely um, wrongful. So one of the, I, I guess, tragedies of this case is that the original investigator refused to admit that they had made a mistake, right? Uh, yeah, that continues today. Anyone who had their hands on the case early in the 19, 1989 in the early 90s still stand by this conviction and um, still base their opinions on the pseudoscience that was once believed to be um, true. How do they justify it based on modern science, though? Isn't that a good question? Um, I, I struggle with that, um, that question, because uh, it seems pretty clear. And from the many experts that I've talked to, 
the science simply just doesn't support that conclusion. I believe that there's some tunnel vision and some, if you truly believe something, uh, you will see the result that you want to see. And it's actually defined in um, what they use their guidebook as bias, cognitive bias, expectation bias, um, and uh, confirmation bias. So when you look at a burn pattern that would maybe indicate an arson, but if it could also indicate something completely different, like ventilation in the room, they just don't see the alternate explanation and they really just lean into the guilty interpretation of that pattern. And then talk about your expert because his testimony was so critical. Um, are you talking about Dr. Greg Orbit? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I met uh, Dr. Gorbit while we were prepping for the hearing, actually. Uh, again, at the time, I'm still learning this. I'm trying to become like a mini lawyer expert in this area. So at the time, I was still wrapping my head around it. We had gotten a hearing um, based on the papers. And then the prosecution was bringing in these experts and they were saying things that I wasn't really familiar with. And Paul Bieber, who was kind of my mentor in the beginning and teaching me the ways of the bad um, fire investigators and fire investigation said, you really need Dr. Gorbit in your corner. I'm going to connect you two and get him involved. And so once we started exchanging um, case files and having phone calls about the case, he really explained exactly, was, was able to explain exactly why this case is your ideal case for showing how bad the fire investigation was in the beginning. And um, he was able to step back, I think, um, because he works both sides. He's also a professor. He's also a scientist. He has published many articles on the issues faced in our case. Um, and he was able to explain it not only to me, but to the judge. Um, and to my colleagues about on, in a very like layperson simple way on why this case is not an arson um, and the issues with it. So he came in um, and explained ventilation driven patterns to the judge and it really did seem like our judge was getting it. Um, he was able to, you know, bring in all of his research and publications, which is something we didn't have um, early on in this case, but uh, since that hearing, He's also been able to use his expertise in um, computer modeling to uh, debunk just the theory that the prosecutors relied on at the time of trial and still kind of heavily rely on. So we've been, he's really been the key in, uh, in proving that Joanne really didn't start this fire. And one of the interesting things in the book, and um, bear with me, it's been about a year since I read it, but uh the original investigators didn't even seem to really understand flashover, right? Oh, yeah. So the original investigators said flashover had not occurred. And it was a huge debate during the trial because the defense expert was like, hey, it definitely occurred. Um, and they had, even at the time, the defense who said it did occur had a very limited understanding of what that meant for fire pattern interpretation. Uh, the prosecution had to say no no it didn't occur and the defense <laughs> expert crazy is kind of how if you read the 6,000 pages of transcripts 
the prosecution experts and prosecution just attack the defense experts saying he just wants you to think flashover so it debunks our theory but it didn't happen um today everybody except the original investigator are like well yeah flashover did happen but our side is saying because it happened you can't interpret these burn patterns this way and their side is saying well it happened but we can still interpret those patterns that way um and so that's kind of still what's happening but you're right at the time of the original trial um the expert just said no it didn't happen and um then describe exactly what kind of judicial process uh she comes to is this in 2015 or is this later um the post-conviction right is that, okay so in 2015 is the first time we filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the california superior court you start at the bottom um and we said uh, we had a bunch of evidence to show that the original trial was false and it was a violation of her due process because it was um, based on pseudoscience. Uh, and um, there had been such a sh shift in the science. We had a full evidentiary hearing. It took 10 months because habeas corpus litigation isn't a priority because it's, there's no like a constitutional right to have like a speedy habeas hearing. So. The judge we got assigned only had two days per month at most to put us in front of him. We each had three experts, so there were six experts total. We had openings and closings um, and some briefing in the middle, so it took 10 months. Then um, it was 90 days. A little bit after 90 days, we got the denial. The court ended up denying our petition for a habeas corpus, saying that um, if the original trial was battle of the experts and the jury believed the prosecution, and today, it's still battle of the experts. And he just kind of said, well, one side says this and the other side says this, and I don't know who to believe. So I'm denying the petition. It wouldn't really matter. He did say the evidence at trial was false, but he didn't take it to the next step to say, had they not introduced the false evidence, it would have changed the trial. So we um, brought that another habeas petition to the court of appeal and they waited four months to summarily deny it. And what that means is they just kind of give a stamp denial and no reason. Um, soon after that, I filed in the California Supreme Court and within eight days of filing, they ordered informal briefing and we're still right now in the middle of informal briefing. And I think that's really important to, to lay out. So I'm glad you did because uh, first of all, I can relate on the habeas. Uh, I've been covering a local one, uh, which started in June, and it's not even halfway through, and now the courts are shut down. So that that yeah. may end up being a couple-year-long habeas process. So I can definitely relate on that. But the, the thing I think that the average person can't get their mind wrapped around is here you have a conviction that's clearly based on science that doesn't exist anymore and never really existed in the first place. Um, and, you know, maybe you uh, can go through kind of the history of this forensic science stuff and the uh, arson science, but, you know, normally uh, if you want a scientifically valid theory, you have to do a double blind test and you have to test it out and be able to show reliably over and over again that that certain things are true and, and there's just they never did that right yeah and i can honestly say the testing that they've even 
done now is there, but it's not there, you know, like there's so much more they could do and um, they just don't. And I don't really know. It's one of my big pet peeves and probably makes a lot of fire investigators not very fond of me um, is I, I just don't understand because some of these companies and these bigger um, labs are getting this money to do testing and they're doing it in a way that is just not moving the ball forward. It's not giving us some like our teeth to sink in in court and maybe that's the reason. Maybe they don't want that. Um, a lot of the old fire investigators who are, really believe that this is an art and it's something that you're either good at or you're not and really the science is holding them back. So maybe that's it. Um, but you know, if you go to like the fingerprint analysis, if you look at like the Brandon Mayfield case, when we have the, uh, when there was that bomb in Spain, a bomb went off in Spain, terrorist attack, and they accused, you know, FBI did the fingerprint analysis. They said it was um, Brandon Mayfield. Uh, three different fingerprint analysts confirmed it's Brandon Mayfield, Brandon Mayfield, great. Um, then the Spanish authorities came in and said, I don't know what you guys are doing in the United States, but it's not Brandon Mayfield. We have the guy here. We have a confession. Um, he was in town. Brandon was like not even in the country. Uh, and the FBI said, what did we do wrong? And they went back and they really analyzed their procedures and their policies. And they, they looked into the bias that was inherent both within the, um, with between the experts and also the bias and having information that they knew about Brandon, that he was Muslim, um, given to the experts and they, they make changes. But that's not happening quickly enough, maybe on a smaller scale in the fire investigation field. It's, you know, we have um, Willingham who was executed. We know there were problems with that. It's almost identical to Joanne Parks' case. Um, and there are organizations that are taking steps to fix it but there's not like a national there's like a they're not everyone's not embracing it and they're not doing the testing that needs to be done to help move this as a science faster forward faster if that makes any sense i don't know if i answered your question i can ramble on about this stuff all day <laughs> no that's fine um you know i was actually going to ask you about cameron todd willingham because that that case seems almost identical. The two key things that come out of that case, which are, you know, kind of sticking points. One is the bad arson science. And the other is the presumption that we can tell by post uh, event behavior that somebody is or is not guilty. Right. Right. Um, you see that a lot in almost all of our cases. It's especially true when you have a female defendant. Um, it happened with Willingham, as we know. Um, but if you look at typically the women, if they're not responding in a way that everyone deems as appropriate, then obviously immediately become a suspect. And uh, the interesting thing about Joanne and her behavior immediately after the fire is that now the fire happened in 89. Her trial didn't happen until 92, her trial and arrest. And the behavioral aspect of it wasn't even really, they didn't go back and start talking to firefighters and police officers about her behavior at the time until years later. And it was until it was after they knew she was a suspect. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know, she wasn't crying enough. And, you know, uh, I don't remember her trying to even go in and save her children where we have a neighbor 
who testifies, I was holding her back. She was trying to get back in that fire and I was holding her back. But the police officers or firemen years later are saying, no, no, you know, she was just not crying enough. She just, or she was crying so well that it was like an award-winning performance. And we've seen that in another case. So yes, the way you react to something so tragic is being held against these defendants um, time after time again. And it's unfortunate because we don't really know how we're going to act in those kind of situations. So this is probably a good time. Uh, why don't you uh, explain who Joanne actually is and what her background was? Um, do you want me to? So if you read Burned, you know that Joanne had a uh, struggle in her upbringing. Uh, she was adopted. She felt um, unloved, unwanted. She was kind of the black sheep of the family. Her stepfather didn't really treat her well. She um, ended up getting pregnant really young, and the, they, her mom hid it because they were part of the church, and they didn't want anyone to know that she was pregnant out of wedlock and at such a young age, and her mom forced her to give that baby up. And unfortunately, while that baby was in foster care, it passed away of it has, uh, SIDS, crib death. Um, so she ended up running away, just trying to find somebody who loves her and cares about her. And that's when she met Ronald Parks, her husband at the time of this fire. And he was much older than her. And um, it's really interesting because at trial, they used a lot of this against her because she lied to him about her age. Um, and she lied to him about her name for a while. And then when they went to get married, he learned all of that about her because she couldn't get married. She needed her mom to sign off. Um, they ended up getting married. Uh, and I really talked to Joanne a lot about, you know, she, she married Ron. She had her children. She really, really wanted something. She wanted to feel like she fit in. And her children were that for her. And so getting accused of killing the the very being that gave her a purpose in life that made her finally feel that um, comfort of somebody loving her unconditionally and wanting her just is really, really difficult for her. And, you know, being a mother myself and having these conversations with her, it's, it's gut-wrenching. It's so heartbreaking because those children were her life. Those children gave her like a meaning. Um, but she was up before the fire. She was, beaten down she was broken she um never had it easy and ronald wasn't great he was abusive that came out later um and he was controlling so he didn't want her to work um but she's been working through that in prison her time in there has been she's been recognizing um when if and when she gets that chance at freedom on how she can make sure that she's not relying on other people but um yeah, I think the the thing about her and today, um, when I first met Joanne, I think I met with her three times and she said three, seven words to me. Um, but now we have 15 minute phone calls. That's all she's allowed for phone call. And she talks nonstop and we have grown a bond together to where she feels comfortable and trusts me and safe. And I've seen her really flourish as a person and grow and open up and let more people in. Um, and it's been really fun and beautiful and inspiring to watch. And um, the apartment itself was substandard, right? That was part of the problem. They had moved into it. They went from a homeless shelter into this. Um, it was a converted two-car garage 
526 square feet, and they managed to fit three rooms, a living room, and a kitchen, and a bathroom. Um, it had no smoke alarms, um, and it was never really evaluated to see if it was up to code, even in 1989. So, yeah, it was just a converted two-car garage that a landlord rented out to them, and then a week after they moved in, the fire broke out. So I want to go back uh, to the judge's ruling. So basically what's happening here is he gets competing um, testimony from the um, uh, your guy's side and the state and 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 decides, well, I can't I, I can't differentiate between the two, even though I think there's flaws in in one of them. Mm-hmm. Is that basically yeah. what, what what's going on here? Yeah, um, you know, we put on evidence that there was that the trial had false evidence. We put we had experts come in. Everybody on every side agreed it was flashover. It seemed like in the beginning it was a slam dunk. If you said there was no flashover and there was flashover, and today we know that means a lot and that changes everything. It just didn't seem like we can lose if I'm being honest um, and it hurts to say because I um, think I was kind of blown away when I when the I got the other side's expert report his name is Brian Hallback he's probably going to be the one who brought home their side position um, because he has the credentials on paper He's been trained in these areas, but he was still very comfortable getting up on that stand and saying things like, not only did I, did he say he thinks there's only two points of origin, which was the original trial theory. He tried to extend it and be like, if I were to go and look at the fire today, I would say where there were three points of origin. And he just testified so far beyond the science and what would be allowed today. Um, and the judge bought it hook line thinker even though he was crossed on it my experts came in and said you just, the science doesn't allow that and let me explain why and let me point to the studies that show you why you can't say that to a scientific degree of certainty or whatever the language you want to use um but he got in and said no you can and i'm gonna say that and there's just you know you can't i can get up and scream in court and say he's lying you know i you use your tools i did my cross-examination um, but this judge, I guess, just wasn't comfortable enough with um, with overturning the conviction. So he said it was a battle of the experts. And my whole point is, is it a battle if one side is just not relying on anything with scientific foundation? Is it science if there's no scientific foundation to your opinions? So, no, I don't agree it's battle of the experts because I don't believe there was any science. So maybe there wasn't a true expert. I don't know. And we see this problem all the time, even in, in, in trial court. The judge doesn't want to weigh in on this kind of stuff. And they'll say, well, we'll just leave that for the jury to decide, as though the jury is qualified to weigh between two experts. Right. And technically, the judge is the jury in these evidentiary hearings. Right. So he, but it would have been a more... It would have been an easier pill to swallow, to be honest, if he did it that way. If he said, well, this one says X and this one says Y, and I believe the credibility of X is stronger, so I'm going to lean on that one more. 
or I believe the credibility of Wyatt. He didn't do that. He said, okay, these are really good experts that have differing opinions, but that would be great if both were relying on the science. What's breaking down here? Is it, is it the system? Is it the judge? Is it the prosecutor? Is it everything? Um, I think it's the system. And I think the best, the best illustration of that is in Ed Humes' book when he says, you know, the law looks backwards. They look at precedent. What have we done in the past? Where science looks forward. And it says, how can we become better? How can we become more scientific? And the two just don't meet up. And it's a very slow process to get them working together. Um, and that is just highlighted here tenfold. I do believe if the fire investigation world would have done more studies, um, and we weren't just relying on an exercise from 2005 or, you know, which is one of, and Greg Gorbett brought in his um, study on post-flash over ventilation control fires that he did. And it was a true scientific study um, that showed that there was a one in four error, uh, 25% error rate at best when you're looking at fires even more simple than mine. Um, and his study was great, but I just think maybe the judge wants, there needs to be more studies to show that this is really an issue and maybe that was it, but you know, them again, we're not getting those studies. And I guess from my perspective, the frustrating part of this case is that you would have thought after Cameron Todd Willingham and everything we learned from that case, that we wouldn't be repeating the same errors over again. I agree. Um, and with, the way our criminal justice system is set up in the United States, it really um, depends on jurisdiction, judge, timing. Sometimes we joke that it's like, you know, it's, it's a gamble. You can have the best case in the world in front of the wrong judge, or you can have the, you know, obese. we've had cases that are, you know, not as strong. We still believe in their innocence, maybe the evidence. And then we get a judge that just is favorable. And so have this case sat in a Texas courthouse, um, you know, in Texas, they have an advisory committee and they are really, really advanced in looking at their fire investigation, their arson cases and making sure they stick with the science now. So maybe if this was a Texas case, I would have, we would have won in the Superior Court and she would be free today to have be on the podcast with you. Maybe if it was a different judge in Los Angeles, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, but it is something that is very inconsistent over the country. Um, and there are many arson invest, uh, exonerees that have very similar case to Joanne, um, almost identical, and they're free today. And do you think if this, the original trial were, were done today that she'd be convicted again? I don't think they have enough evidence to charge her today. However, if they did charge her today, um, I don't think they would get the conviction as long as the attorney knew that they were doing it. I just don't think that if this was the original investigation, they would have jumped into um, incendiary. I don't think they would have had the evidence. Um, but I also think that they would have done a better investigation. Now, you have to remember at the time of trial, there were multiple things that could have started this fire. There was a VCR, there was a television, there was a fan. We had, there was, you know, they could have had the area of origin wrong. There was a heater. There was stuff all over the house that could have started this fire. At the time of the trial, it was visually looked at and it was discarded. It's gone. Had they today, they would have probably collected that 
Um, they would have looked at all of the wires, all of the cords. They would have done arc mapping. There would have been a better investigation that would have probably identified the true source of the fire. Very interesting. All right, final question. Uh, why is it so hard to exonerate people? I don't know. <laughs> I in this country, we there's it. They believe in upholding the integrity of a conviction. They the law is that the defendant is given these rights and these fair trials. Um, and so, if they get the conviction, they did what they were supposed to do, and it should it should be accurate. And let's uphold that conviction. So, coming back and undoing one is almost harder than getting a conviction after that's happened. Um, and uh, it's easier today than I think it was 20 years ago because of the advancements in DNA that had shown a case that would normally have been laughed at if somebody said they were innocent. DNA has proven that they're innocent. And so a lot of people have taken a step back and going, hey, we do get this wrong sometimes. Um, district attorney's offices are, con are um, establishing conviction review units so that they're coming in and they're also looking at cases from a different uh, in, um, perspective, um, saying, well, maybe this was a wrongful conviction. But it's still, I mean, if you don't have DNA saying the guy didn't do it, these are long, um, long battles. I mean, one of our cases in our office lasted 15 years before our client got exonerated. So, Yeah, it's really interesting. I just interviewed um, this guy, Jamie Lau, in, at, at the Duke Innocence uh, Center. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he's got a client there and uh, it's a 44-year-old case. And, and, yeah. and this guy... There, there's really not a shred of evidence other than the original flawed identification by the victim. Uh, and, and they can't get him out in that one. Um, right. I did want to ask one more question. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, explain what happens now, because it, it's not like she was commuted and she walks out the door. Uh, it's going to mm -hmm. go to a parole hearing, right? Right. So, Joanne was convicted to life without the possibility of parole, which is basically a death sentence. You just die instead of going to the death chamber. You die of a uh, natural causes in prison. Um, so the governor commuted that and making her immediately eligible for parole. So now she's 27 to life. She's already served 28 years. So as soon as they can get her in front of the parole board, she will try to convince them she's on a danger to the community and she'll get released on parole. Um, what that means is for me, um, for us at the California Innocence Project, is there is a lot of pressure taken off of my shoulders to really focus on fighting this case for the flawed science that it is. Because if I lose in the California Supreme Court, if they do not see this um, and they look at precedent and look backwards and they don't change the law in this state, she, we really are at the end of our rope here. I mean, we would still fight it. We'd take it up to the federal courts and we would try to change the law to make it even more favorable. But now, even if she gets out on parole, I can continue to fight for her full exoneration, knowing that she's still given a second chance at life. Um, and I wasn't offered that and she wasn't offered that. So all of our eggs aren't in that basket anymore. Um, so for Joanne, she will get a second chance at life and we will still continue to fully exonerate her so she can clear her name. And you feel like she's a good candidate to get paroled at this point? Absolutely. She's been a model in me. She's followed all the rules. She has no disciplinary record. She's really worked on herself. Um, she's not a danger to society. She never was. So, um, 
we just have to prove that to the parole board. She just, you know, she wants to get out. She wants to visit her kid's grave site. She wants to properly mourn the death of the three people that meant the most to her in the entire world. Are they going to penalize her because she's maintained her innocence? It is a hurdle we have to consider in full hearings. They have gotten much better at accepting that. Um, we have to show that her innocence is plausible. So um, I think we can do that with all of the reports Dr. Gorbett, Don Lentini um, have drafted for us and all of the changes in the science. It's a lower standard than court. So as long as we properly convince both the, psych about, uh, the psychologist who evaluates her and the parole board that her claim of innocence is plausible, they can't penalize her for it. Oh, that's good to know. All right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. This was a case, you know, when I read that book, I, my heart was broken. I, I, I got to yeah. be honest. Uh, and I'm sure you felt that 10 times at least. <laughs> All the time. Yes. Yes. But uh, thank you for coming on and sharing what you know about this case. Thank you for having us. And thank you for your listeners for listening. And um, we'll keep you guys updated. Thank you. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. That was Raquel Cohen from the California Innocence Project way down in San Diego. And she was talking about the 1989 case of Joanne Parks. Joanne was uh, commuted uh, by Governor Newsom last Friday. And now she will go before a parole board and hopefully she will uh, be released after 26 years in prison. This has been Everyday Injustice. Join us again next time for more stories from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www justiceforgeorgepowell.com that's justiceforgeorgepowell all one word dot com Thank you.